Hey guys, welcome to, you know, yes, we are doing the Awakening Report and guess what? I'm taking your questions. Totally excited about that. I see this. There's already some great questions in there. If you guys want to leave a question, what you need to do is log into YouTube, then get on the uh, show, preferably before we start, put your question in there and I'll do my very best to get to it. So uh, we'll get to those in a second. Also, if you want to help con uh, continue this, the ministry here, thank you. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Doug Hamp and give whatever you feel is right. Thank you for that. Again, it helps keep the lights on, pay for gas and all those different things. So thank you very much. Also, we are going to be having a Passover dinner uh, Sunday, March 27th. So if you guys can join us uh, that day, if you can come in person, that's the best. Uh, we're not going to be live streaming it. So if you can join us, it'd be great. You can go to thewaycongregation.com and you can get tickets there. And of course, every Shabbat, we have uh, our services here on my channel. And we'd love for you to join us and just get involved. So God's doing amazing things. I'm totally excited. All right, let's jump into the questions. This is from... Uh, C. Is observing Sabbath on Saturday essential for salvation? Can I observe the Sabbath on a different day of the week and still be right with God? Thank you. Well, um, is it essential for salvation? I don't know that it's essential for salvation. That is one of those questions I think we have to ask God. You know, what I see that is essential for salvation is that we... Uh, proclaim Jesus as our Lord and King, and we live for Him, all right? Now, there are a number of professions that were required to work on Shabbat. The Levites had their different uh, positions within the temple. Certainly, the farmer was expected to feed his animals or to, to give them water, right? Now, if you have one cow, that's not a huge job. Uh, if you got a bunch of cows, well, that's a Bigger job, isn't it? If you are in charge of sheep, you know, you're a shepherd. That's your job. Guess what? The sheep don't take a day off. They still need to be led around. So when you start thinking about these different things, that this is what was necessary uh, for the times back then. People had to do stuff. All right. And I don't know how the shepherd would have done it. When did the shepherd take his Sabbath? I'm not sure. But as far as the Sabbath goes, we know that the Sabbath is. Saturday. It's from Friday night sundown until Saturday night sundown. That's what God defines as the seventh day as a Sabbath. All right. So you can't change that. You can't change that. But can you rest on another day? Sure. I mean, of course you can rest on another day. There's no question about it. Even as a pastor, right? I lead a Messianic congregation. We meet on Shabbat and I love it. It's so wonderful. But you know what? I love to get my my Shabbat nap after the service, because uh, it, that's the day to do it, right? So, you know, I'm working. I enjoy the work, but I am working, right? It does take energy to do those things. So, you know, just consider. Now, you may be in a position where maybe you're not in an essential kind of job. You know, talk to your boss. Or if you're the boss, think, do I have to be working today, right? So if you're not in one of those essential kind of jobs, Talk with your employer, and it's quite likely that they will try to work with you. Uh, if not, then I would just say, you know, pray to God would, would help you to either find an occupation where you can get the Sabbath off, if at all possible. Um, or, you know, just pray that uh, God will show you more wisdom as time goes on. Here's the bottom line of the Sabbath. It's a gift from God to you. God wants you to take it, to enjoy it. And if you don't guard it, if you squander it, then guess what? It's gone, right? If uh, if your parents give you a brand new car for your 16th birthday and then you go and crash it into a tree, well, that's too bad, right? It's really unfortunate. And they probably won't buy you another car, right? You had your car, you had your chance, too bad. So don't squander the wonderful gift that God has given us. And I know it's complicated. It's always been complicated, right? It was never easy, but really guard it to the very best of your ability. I don't think that it 
affects your salvation. But don't quote me on that. You'll have to take that up with God. And I don't see anywhere in Scripture where it says that you're going to hell if you don't keep it. But I believe that we're missing a blessing. And I really think that's the point, is that we're, we're missing the blessing by not doing what he's called us to and by not doing what he's given us. And again, this is a gift that God wants to give to us. And if we don't take advantage of it, then we, we lose it. We forfeit that incredible blessing that God had ended. So, you know, just be careful. Don't, don't squander this great thing that God has given because it is a wonderful, wonderful gift. So I want to take you guys over to Isaiah uh, 58. And here it talks about how wonderful this gift is. Okay. And he's talking, of course, about a fast. And he says, this is the fast that I want you to do to take care here. I think I want to go actually. Oh, here we go. If you turn your foot away from doing my pleasure, your pleasure on my holiday and call the Sabbath a delight, the holiday of the Lord honorable and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Look, there's a blessing here. That's the thing. There's a blessing that comes with keeping the Sabbath. So you're forfeiting the blessing if you decide not to keep it, or even if you cannot keep it. Whatever this blessing is, you're, you're forfeiting that. He says, I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and you feed with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's why I believe, you know, we want to keep the Sabbath because there is an incredible blessing that God wants to give to each and every one of us. All right. Fantastic. Thank you for that great question. This is from Ed Doss, by the way. I want to give Ed Doss a shout out because, uh, he and I were talking last week. Uh, somebody asked the question about why did Jesus turn water into wine? And I said, well, that was what was necessary. And I still stand by that. But uh, Ed brought out uh, another really cool aspect, which is that Jesus is kind of that second Moses, if you will. And the first public um, miracle that Moses did was turning the Nile River into blood. And so this could be a picture, a type of where now the second Moses is turned doing something with water to uh, not to blood, but to to wine, which is red. So I think that was really cool. Thank you, Ed, for sharing that with me. I do appreciate it. All right. Here's your question. Why does Jeremiah 31, 31 begin speaking about the house of Israel and Judah, but goes on only to mention Israel? Oh, man, Ed, you asked some great questions. And I'll tell you, that is not an easy one to answer because I have long asked myself that same question. And, you know, to be quite frank with you, I'm not sure that I have the answer. But I'll, I'll give you just a couple of thoughts, right? I'm just kind of spitballing here. All right, so here's the text that you're talking about. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them, by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. All right. So I think that's our first clue is that when God is writing this in the book of Jeremiah, in fact, let's go back to Jeremiah chapter three. This is an important part, I believe, in answering your question. It says, they say, God is, here's God's talking. They say, if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, May he return to her again. Would not the land be greatly polluted? But you've played the harlot with many lovers, yet return to me. So who is he talking to? He's talking to Judah. Lift up your eyes to the desolate heights and see, where have you not lain with men? By the road you have sat for, uh, for them like an Arabian in the wilderness, and you've polluted the land with your harlotries and your wickedness. Therefore the showers have been withheld, and there has been no latter rain. You have had a harlot's forehead. You refused to be ashamed. Will you not go from this time, cry to me? Will you not from this time cry to me, my father? You are the guide of my youth. And he goes on here. So I'm going to skip down here. And I said, uh, after you've done all these things, return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. All right. So, so yeah, here, backsliding Israel. What has she done? All right. Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear 
but went and played the harlot also. So it came to pass through her casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return backsliding Israel. Thus says the Lord, I will not cause my anger to fall on you. I am merciful, says the Lord. I will not remain angry forever and only acknowledge your, iniqu your iniquity. All right, so here's the deal. Both of these two sisters, Judah and Israel, committed adultery in big, big ways. But God only gave a certificate of divorce to the house of Israel. Notice here, backsliding Israel committed adultery. I gave her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. And I want to say, um, he says uh, that, let's see, I'm blanking here, but he says that Judah um, acted worse than uh, than Israel. Okay, so he only divorced the northern kingdom. I think that is really the clue to the question you're asking, Ed, that the uh, both the house of Israel and Judah need a new covenant. All right, but he only divorced the northern kingdom. He only divorced the northern kingdom. So then he says, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I, I think we could, we could potentially make the argument that the house of Judah has always kept the law. Now, they didn't keep it perfectly, mind you. All right, but they've they've had it in their minds and they've had it on their hearts. They know the law. Right? They still haven't always loved God as he has expressed, but they have known the law. Whereas uh, Israel, what did Israel do with God's law? He says in Isaiah chapter 8, maybe it's chapter 7. Uh, I think it's chapter 7. He says that I gave them great things out of my law, right? And they considered it um, nonsense here. I'm sorry. I probably should have had my afternoon coffee in order to give you this thing a little faster. I'm kind of I'm kind of blanking here. Um, it's uh, let's see. It's either in seven or eight. But he says that I gave them ten thousand things out of my laws. And here we go. All right. I've written for him the great things of my law. Who, who's him? Ephraim, which is the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, I've written for him great things in my law, or 10,000 things in my law, but they were considered a strange thing. All right. So Judah considered God's law a strange thing. Again, they haven't gotten it perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they have had a high regard for God's law. Whereas Ephraim, and today I would suggest that the house of Israel was scattered to the nation, scattered to the Gentiles, and they were swallowed up by the Gentiles, as it says in Hosea. So to bring them back, to bring back Ephraim, is to bring back Gentile believers. That's, that's a simple equation. And to, to this day, most Gentile believers have a very low regard for the Torah. Right to, to say that it's written on their heart, eh, I don't know that's that's a little harder to do. So those are just my thoughts. I hope those were helpful, Ed. I'm sorry I cannot answer it completely because that is a tricky question, but it's a great question. So thank you for that, brother. All right, this is from Jason Meyer. When was the prayer of Manasseh written in the apocryphal writings? Is it pseudepigrapha or second temple period? Jason, I'm going to be completely frank with you. I do not know. I'm not sure when that was written. Um, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. You got me. So thank you for a good question. I don't have an answer. I can say this, though. The Second Temple period, or many of the apocryphal writings, uh, were written, of course, in that Second Temple period, typically from around 300 at the, at the earliest, if you will, uh, B.C., probably 250 B.C., somewhere in there. Till about 70 AD. That's kind of the time frame, right? That's the second temple period. So 
Um, but I'm not sure. I do not know when the prayer of Manasseh was written. So sorry, man, this is good. Two questions. Here's a question. I just don't get it. All right. Here's from JD Thomas. When is New Jerusalem during or after millennium? Oh, wow. JD, that's a good question. And I do have an opinion on that. And I know that not everyone is going to share my opinion, which, you know, that's what opinions are all about, right? But as I have studied this topic, I remember I was teaching through the book of Isaiah and I kept looking at Isaiah 65 in particular, and I thought, wait a second, the new heavens and earth, he's talking about these, right? Let's look at this so you guys can kind of see the challenge that I, uh, concerning uh, this text. So Isaiah 65, we're going to start at verse 17. So God says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. For the former shall not be remembered, the former troubles, that is, former troubles right here. All right, so shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying, nor for, shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And I thought, wait a second. If we have the new heavens and earth, as it says right here, and yet there's still the potential for death. An old man who has not fulfilled his days, a child dies at 100, a sinner dies at 100. So if we still have the potential of death, not the necessity, but the potential of death, then to me that sounds like maybe we have uh, kind of put the timing of the new heavens and earth at the wrong spot. Now, I, I know you're asking specifically about the new Jerusalem. I'm going to get to that. So let's now go to Revelation 22. And it says, He showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the street was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. All right, so uh, God's throne and the Lamb are in this place, of course, right? And we see that the city has no need for a lamp of the sun or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. Right? We know this is talking about the New Jerusalem. But when we skip down here to verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments. There's a manuscript issue here. It could be who wash their garments. But it says that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices. This is a lot. So there is more that could be said on that topic. But I think that gives you enough to give you to give you a sketch of Isaiah 65 and the New Jerusalem in Revelation are the same thing. The new heavens and earth come shortly after the return of Christ. Now I can't give you the exact day, but I would suggest that when the new heavens and earth happen, when Jesus renews the heavens and earth. That is the beginning of the millennium. My uh, take on this is that Jesus comes back on trumpets. He judges at Yom Kippur. That's when Satan is thrown into the abyss. And then we look forward a few days later, we have Sukkot. And I would suggest that is the time when we have the new heavens and earth, right? I mean, this is when God dwells with men, right? This is the incredible time that we're talking about. But during this, this new phase of human history, there will be a, the first thousand years of this phase will be where Satan's put away. You still have mortals on the earth and people have the ability to rebel. After the thousand years, there are some changes, but as far as the new heavens and earth, those do not take place. All right, so that's all to kind of give you this wind-up to when does the new Jerusalem come down? I would argue it comes at the beginning of the millennium. 
because God wants to dwell with his people. That's the point. He wants to dwell with his people. We see that in Isaiah 25. There's so many passages. But we saw specifically in Isaiah 65 that God is going to make new heavens and earth. There's still the potential of death. And he's going to dwell with his people. We see that in Isaiah 66 as well. Many passages. So that's my take on it. Kind of in a nutshell, there's certainly a lot of, uh, a lot more verses that could be brought into the but for the sake of brevity, I'm going to try to uh, keep it at that. Looks like a following question here. New Jerusalem is after the millennium. Where does Jesus reign rule for 1,000 years? So again, uh, my, my position is that the New Jerusalem is during or you know at the beginning of the millennium. And I would suggest that's where he reigns from. When I grew up as a dispensationalist, I heard that you got the earth and then you got the new Jerusalem kind of hovering up here for a while. It's like a satellite and Jesus is commuting. You know, he's kind of, he's up here with the church for, you know, this time, but then he's also coming back to the Jews who are down on earth. And then he keeps going back and forth. I don't know. I got quite confused on that. I, I think it's much simpler. I think there's that all the texts fit together perfectly. When we just say the new Jerusalem comes down to planet earth at the beginning of the millennium and only only those people who have a new body who have uh, either kept the commandments i think the better translation is who have washed their garments washed them in the river of life right can then partake of the tree of life and then they can enter into the city let me just take you back to that really quick here blessed are those who do his commandments right so there's a little textual issue here if we look at the New English translation, I, I appreciate their perspective. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they can have access to the tree of life and can enter into the city by the gates. The city here is the new Jerusalem, right? So they wash their robes, they take the tree of life, and then they can enter the city by the gates. Outside, however, are dogs, sorcerers, uh, sexually immoral, right? And th these are the people that we saw in Isaiah 6, 5, that, you know, the young man and the sinner are going to die at 100. So that's how I would put piece those together. I know it's a different paradigm. I get that. And some people are like, that's impossible. I think it's very, I think it's very possible. And I think the pieces fit together well. Thank you for your question. All right. Uh, here we go. This is from Dion. Uh, Shalom, can you explain Deuteronomy 14? Uh, let's see here. In my case, I am a deli clerk in one of grocery store. We sell unclean, but I'm following Levitical food law. So it means I can sell pork or any unclean, but don't eat it. I, th I think that's the case. I mean, we do see that God talks about um, basically roadkill, right? If something dies, um, uh, you know, you're not supposed to eat it, but you can give it to other people, right? So if you're part of the covenant, there, there are food laws that we're supposed to observe for our good, mind you, right? Um, but it is possible to sell those to an outsider. And it's not just roadkill, but it's also talking about uh, certain things that, that we're not supposed to eat, but if others want to eat them, sure. So I think that's the case. Um, there's probably a nuance in there that we would want to be careful about. You know, he does say in Leviticus chapter 11, you know, that we're to stay away from it, you know? So I, I get what you're saying. Like if I had to serve pork at this time, I don't know how I'd feel about that, quite frankly. Um, so that's challenging. I don't, I don't know if you can uh, ask for a, um, you know, can you put me somewhere else, boss? I don't know, but I think you're okay. So, yeah, I'll have to think about that one. <laughs> Thank you for the question. All right, this is from John Padilla. All right, Genesis 9.3 in the Septuagint reads, and every reptile which is living shall be to you for meat. I have given all things to you as the green herbs. Did God give all animals to Noah for food? All right, good question, John. So let's go over to Genesis chapter 9. All right, so Genesis 9. 
Um, all right, so then God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Every living creature of the earth and every bird of the sky will be terrified of you. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea are under your authority. You may eat anything that anything that lives as I gave you green plants. I now give you everything. All right, so this is uh, certainly a translation. Let's check out the New King James for the fun of it. All right, every living thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. All right, so taking a look at this in the Hebrew, uh, also in the Greek, as you pointed out. But uh, in the Hebrew, uh, what I what really sticks out to me is the green herb. Right. So when if we if we do do a comparison, right, that he has uh, given them green herbs to eat right so there's not everything that we can eat there are some mushrooms that will kill us so it's not anything that you see anywhere is available as food some things you should not eat uh, and so that seems to be the case here and then of course he does go on to limit you know you're not supposed to eat the blood make sure the thing is dead uh, etc also i think it would be wrong of take into consideration that God already pointed out in Genesis chapter 7 that God brought seven of every clean animal and then two by two of every unclean animal. So he's already given a greater supply of the clean animals. Now we're not told explicitly, you know, if he's like, hey, Noah, by the way, these are clean and what I mean by clean is, right, he, we're not told that. But what we do is we can do is we can infer from the text that if he already made a distinction two chapters before this, that it was already understood that, that you there was a distinction between the animals. Even if he was not eating them, there was already a distinction between them. And that's probably the important key is that they... They were not eating animals before that, as far as we can tell. God had sanctioned the eating of herbs, grasses of different types, right? But he had not sanctioned the eating of animals, as far as we can tell. I say that because we know that Cain and Abel, right? That Abel brought a sacrifice, and it was a blood sacrifice, which meant that he had killed an animal. What did he do with that animal after that? Did he eat it? We're not told. We're just not told. But we do know in Genesis chapter 6 that things went downhill really quickly and the earth became corrupted and people were doing all kinds of stuff. So looking at some of the extra biblical texts, it says that they were creating monsters and doing some weird stuff. So, you know, can we infer from that that they were eating animals? I think that's possible. But, you know, we, we just don't have enough data to make a hard call. So, John, per your question, and I, I, I probably wouldn't go with the Septuagint reading uh, of every reptile, um, you know, everything that moves, right? So he's he's certainly talking about living animals. He's talking about animals that uh, have mobility, and how these animals are now available for food. But he's already given us the distinction in chapter seven that certain things are not to be. Uh, eaten. So thank you for that. All right. This is from uh, Corey. I just had someone, a pastor, say Joseph is Yeshua's biological father. I always believed it was a supernatural conception. He said Yeshua's father had to be from the line of David biologically. Uh, he uses the genealogy in Matthew. All right. Well, uh, it's too bad he's saying that, that a pastor would suggest that he's the biological father. Now, he's certainly the adoptive father. So maybe you want to just check with him to make sure he wasn't uh, saying that it was the adopted father. Because we all, I think, pretty much agree with that. That it, the text is very clear that the Jesus the child came by the Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, we can go back to Luke chapter uh, 1. And we can we can look at that and very clear 
language that he's making it clear where and how Jesus is coming about. So, of course, we have the whole thing with Zechariah. And, uh, of course, then we have to go to chapter 2. Here we go. Um, I'm sorry. Chapter 1. There we go. I know. There we go. So why should he come to me? Uh, let's see here. I'll find that passage in a second. Okay. Here we go. So, um, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua. He'll be great, etc. And she says, how can this be? I do not know a man. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. All right. So look, the Holy Spirit is coming upon. She's even like, look, I haven't known a man. In other words, I haven't had sex. So how could I possibly have a baby? Answer, it's by the Holy Spirit that he is to be born. I just don't know how you can really get on analogies uh, are giving us the line of, of Mary and then the line of Joseph as the adopted father, not the biological father, but the adopted father. So maybe just, you know, kind of double check with that pastor. Uh, you could take him there to that text that we just saw and say, you know, pastor, I don't know what you're, what you're saying. Help me understand uh, you know, give him a chance to explain himself. Uh, Luke one thirty five tells us in no uncertain terms that that Jesus' birth is supernatural and it's by the Holy Spirit. All right, very good. Let's go to the next question. This is from Clayton. He says, according to Jeremiah thirty one thirty one through thirty three, Hebrews eight. 8 through 11, are we in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant right now? Good question, Clayton. We are in the New Covenant, all right? Now, there's definitely some discussion and a little bit of consternation about this. But let's take a look at, uh, let's take a look at the latter passages in Hebrews chapter 8, 8 through 11. Let's start there. I think that'll kind of uh, help us get a look at this maybe a little faster. All right, so I'm going to back up. And he says, now this is the main point. We are saying we have, right, present presidents, we have such a high priest who is seated, is seated, present tense, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, etc., etc., right? And he says, but he, speaking of Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming when I, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, vanish away in the sense that, um, you know, to some degree, this was related to the uh, sacrifices, right? This is the whole point is that that was part of the Levitical old covenant sacrificial system. But the bigger issue when looking at this is that what is the old covenant and what is the new covenant? That's the million dollar question that gets people all riled up. What are these covenants? I remember some years ago, uh, the pastor was telling us how the old covenant had been nailed to the cross. And I went up to him and said, what is the old covenant? And he really didn't know. And okay, you know, I get that. So let's discuss what is the old covenant? Well, the old covenant is where God took Israel from Egypt. He took them to Mount Sinai and he said, uh, I'm going to you know, bless you. And then Israel said, all that the Lord has said, we will do. And then guess what? They established a covenant. What was the, the essence of that covenant? It was a marriage contract. 
Let me take you now back to Jeremiah 31, 31, because that gives us this other context. All right. Now, so it's the same thing, but the uh, New Testament has uh, altered that just a tiny bit. And I don't want to get into the reasons for that. But notice he says, they, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. All right, just to help get a, a little more perspective on this covenant so that we can see this, in Ezekiel chapter 16, God is talking about um, his wife here. He says, you know, I gave you all these wonderful things. I put a jewel in your nose. Uh, you trusted in your own beauty. And he's, let me go back here, verse 8. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was a time of love. So I spread my wing over you. That's basically the, that that's putting the, um, you know, his uh, mantle over her and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. What kind of covenant are we talking about? This is a marriage covenant. It's a marriage covenant. That's the covenant that we're speaking of, a marriage covenant. The old covenant is a marriage covenant, all right? I cannot stress that enough. It's a marriage covenant. So what is the new covenant? It's a marriage covenant. And this is why we just saw in Jeremiah 31, he says, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Now let's go over to Hosea chapter, uh, let's go to chapter 2. And we'll take a look at this. So he's now speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges for she is not my wife. All right, there you go. Nor am I her husband. This is a marriage, right? Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to skip down here. There's beautiful stuff in here, but we don't have time to get into all that. And he says, it'll be in that in that day, in the future, you'll, that you will call me my husband, Ishi, no longer Baali. I'll take the names from her mouth, the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered no more. In that day, I'll make a covenant with them. And he says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Wow. And notice who he's talking about. He's talking. He says, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Now, I'm going to get my little cheat sheet here, which is in, yeah, here we go, First Peter 2.10. Notice the same language. You're a chosen, uh, chosen race, not generation, but chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And we find the same language in Romans chapter 9. So he says, not only of the Jews, but of the Gentiles also, Gentiles, nations, that's where the northern kingdom of Israel went. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it's going to pay, pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. All right. So all of these tests that it was the old covenant was a marriage covenant that Israel, the collective Israel, was unfaithful in, but God then split the nation in 932 BC and Rehoboam kept the southern kingdom of Judah because God had made a promise to David that he would never take it away. And then he gave to Jeroboam the kingdom of Israel. The 10 tribes were then under his authority and his domain. And that didn't work out, right? And so then in 722, is when we have the writings of Hosea, etc., and God says, you're not my people. And that's when the divorce 
happen. So if you've been watching, I answered this on another question in Jeremiah 3. He says that he gave to the house of Israel, he gave a certificate of divorce. The old covenant is a marriage contract and it's a failed marriage contract. Not because God was unfaithful, but because they were unfaithful. So the old covenant is not Torah. This is where people on the Messianic Hebrew root side get a little bit agitated because they're like, what do you mean? You know, we're keeping the old covenant. No, we're not. We're not. What happens is if you conflate Torah with old covenant, then you think, then you got to keep the old covenant. But they're distinct things, totally distinct. Think of it this way. Uh, I presume all of us have a cell phone, right? And, um, you know, I'm with uh, T-Mobile, okay? So let's say that I'm like, you know, I've had T-Mobile forever. I'm really tired of these guys, right? So I cancel my contract. And then a week later, I'm like, you know, T-Mobile was the greatest thing ever. I'm going to go back and, and sign up with T-Mobile again, all right? And in order to do that, I have to sign a new contract. The terms and conditions are the same, but the contract is new. That's what we're talking about. The terms and conditions are the Torah. Those are God's values. Those don't change, but the contract does change. And it's now a better contract because it's not ratified with the blood of bulls and goats, but it's now ratified with the blood of Yeshua. I know it's tricky. I, it, man, it took me a very long time and a lot of men to oil to put some of those pieces together. So I appreciate and feel your pain, guys. Uh, you know, and God's still showing me amazing things out of his word. But this is one that if you can get your mind around this, it will change the way you see the Bible. It'll change uh, the way you see yourself, your identity. Who am I in God's people? Like, what does that mean? You know, am I part of Israel? Am I part of the church? And like, you know, some people think, oh, no, they can't be at all the same. But actually, they're related, very much so. Uh, God has really one people, not, not two. Doesn't have two brides, as some people have said, but just one bride, and that's Israel. And then I, as a Gentile, am grafted into that. I'm brought in to that. And I'm not trying to check my DNA to see if I'm Jewish or anything like that. It doesn't matter. Just like the Egyptians at Mount Sinai were grafted into Israel. That's all I need to know. I'm just grafted in. Uh, you know, if God knows about some genetic thing, great. <laughs> but I don't care because it doesn't matter. I'm in Israel. That's now my people. I'm grafted into this people. I'm part of this people. And the old covenant was a marriage contract that failed. New covenant is a marriage contract. And in both cases, it's a betrothal. We have not had the consummation, so to speak, where God dwells with us, right? You cannot have a consummation until the husband and wife are living together, right? Until then, they're promised to each other. They're legally married, but they're not physically married. And so we're not going to have that consummation, as it were, until after the second coming of Jesus. I think it happens very shortly after that. But that is when that is going to happen. So until then, we're betrothed to him. And we want to be a chaste virgin, ready for our bridegroom to come and take us to be with him. This is why Paul uses the language of marriage to uh, describe this whole thing. All right. Well, that good question. I love it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. <laughs> okay. So let's see here. I'm looking for the next question. Guys, it always helps me if you put a little cue in front of it, then I can get to those a little faster. All right. Can you tell me when the seven-year sabbatical land rest is supposed to start and how to observe it? Because we are in the agricultural business and we depend on that for income. Wow. Uh, you guys are throwing really hard ones at me today. Um, so, yes, there is a seven-year cycle. Uh, there's some debate as to exactly when that seven-year cycle begins. Uh, I know that um, uh, Jonathan Kahn, uh, I think he suggested it was either like 2013 or 14 was the year of Shemitah, right? So the year of Shemitah would be in accordance with that seven-year cycle. Now, I've 
I've, I've spoken with other people. I had somebody on the show some time ago, uh, Joseph Dumont, and he's of a very different opinion as to when these seven-year cycles uh, begin. So I don't have a horse in this race. I, I'm not getting into the calendar wars and, and exactly when these things start. That there is a seven-year cycle, yes. When does it start? I'm not sure. Okay. And um, I'm sorry I cannot answer that question because I don't know. But, uh, you know, I would, I would say until you have that completely figured out, you may want to just, you know, pick one. Or you may want to just do more research. There may be uh, some, some uh, Jewish perspectives. I'm sure there are. That's kind of a niche topic for sure. But I'm sure there's a, a, an answer out there somewhere. I don't have the answer. I do apologize. Nehemia Gordon might be one to ask. Though, if I understood correctly, he's kind of gotten out of the calendar wars as well. But he may still have an opinion and certainly probably a more informed opinion on that question uh, than I would. Or you could go check out Joseph Dumont's uh, perspective. Uh, his, I think, varies from the kind of standard Jewish perspective. Uh, in my opinion, I like to stay with the standard Jewish position right now because God did put Judah as the lawgiver. He may be wrong, right? There, there, there probably are some things that are not completely right with the calendar, but that's the authority that we have uh, on those matters. And so I would probably go with them, but you're free to do what you want. So thank you, Randall. I'm sorry I cannot answer that better for you. It's a great question, uh, but I don't. I just don't have the answer to that. So Thank you. And you guys are stumping me. I love it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's see here. Let's to our next question. Hopefully I can answer this next one. And these are tough. These are really good. And the question is, all right. Why did Moses violate thou shalt not kill commandment? Well, uh, I suppose you're talking about when he killed the, um, the Egyptian. All right. And I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know that scripture tells us. So I can only give, offer you conjecture as to why he would have done that. What I sense is that he saw the suffering of his people. He saw that an Egyptian who he was part of, right? Because he was part of the, that, uh, the palace and the royal family. And now he sees an Egyptian picking on a Hebrew. And so he takes matters into his own, own hands. I think that's really the issue is that he took matters into his own hands. Um, he probably was aware. He most certainly was aware of the commandment not to kill. But, um, you know, he probably sensed that he was somebody special, that he was going to be some kind of a savior. And then God had to take him 40 years in the wilderness, hanging out with sheep to humble him and to prepare him so that he would rely upon God. And he did a pretty good job. Except that one time when he said, you rebels, do we have to take, we have to call water out, you know, or bring water out from this rock, out of this rock for you. So, uh, otherwise, uh, I, I don't know that there's a specific thing in scripture that would say that. So, it's kind of looking, you know, between the lines and, and filling in the blanks. So, I'm giving you my best conjecture. Thank you. All right. This is from Jason Roberts, studying the book of Enoch, all three. Uh, I'm starting to believe aliens are nothing more than different legions of angels. A legion of angels is called Prince of the Three Fingers Thoughts. Well, I would agree with you that, uh, you know, quote unquote, aliens are simply spiritual beings. I don't think that there are physical aliens out there. Not to say that, that God could not have created life elsewhere. But if he did, the Bible is completely silent. Not to mention, we've been looking, right? Amer uh, you know, the world has been looking. SETI has been looking. People are eager to find alien life forms out there. And we found nothing, right? So I'm, I'm suspicious, you know, <laughs> I, I suspect that we're not going to find anything out there. But if we do sort of make contact, uh, I would be very... Um, I would very much think that it's going to be some kind of spiritual entity, call them angels, messengers, whatever you want to call them. I don't know about the Prince of the Three Fingers. Um, so I, 
you know, that's uh, not quite in the Bible. <laughs> so I, I read the book of Enoch, but there's some great stuff in there and I don't have it, uh, don't know it as well as I did the scripture. So thank you. This is from Wilden something 22. Uh, Therefore, God has shown mercy to whomever he chooses and hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Um, okay, that's an interesting thing. And let's go here. Okay, this is from Shalom Girl. What's up with El Elyon? Luke 21.8, Jesus said, many will come in my name. Q is El Elyon, Jesus Christ. Question, is El Elyon Jesus Christ? Uh, yeah, now we have uh, QAnon out there. Sometimes Q throws me for a loop. So is El Elyon Jesus Christ? Well, uh, El Elyon is certainly one of the titles for God in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, that is what he's known as in many places. So if you subscribe to, as I do, to the triune nature of God, then we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Right? We see those uh, in Scripture as early as Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 2, right? In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth, and then we see that the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. And then in John 1, 1, we're told that it's the Word that created all things. So I think they're all involved. They had different aspects of that creation but they're all involved because they're all God. These, the three, uh, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are that. And so El Elyon is most high God. That would be another title for Jesus Christ. I don't think that we can, ex, you know, partition him from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That might get a little bit challenging. But uh, yes, I would say that El Elyon is Jesus Christ. All right. So, um, not sure about your question, Cami. Ezekiel 34, 23 through 24. Uh, you got to give me a question. I'm sure it's an interesting passage. I have no question about it. But I, I do need a question just to kind of go with that. All right. So, it's more interesting discussion, which is great. Here we go. This is from Corey. Is there going to be animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom? If so, why? Wow. Okay. Um, yes, there will be. I'm going to give you the really nutshell version. Sacrifices uh, cannot take away a person's sin, but what they can do is they provide atonement. The word atonement means to cover. And so the blood of the animal is to cover the worshiper. Why? Well, the word for sacrifice is korban, which means to come near. So the animal that gives its life, the victim, which is also korban, it's, it's for the purpose so that the worshiper can come near to God. Why do you need blood to come near to God? Because God is fiery, lightning, electricity just ripping out of him. And if you were to come into his presence with a mortal body, you would be destroyed as were Nadav and Abihu, because they were not careful coming into the presence of the Lord. When Moses said, show me your glory, he said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. No one can see my face and live. And so God took Moses, put him in the cleft of the rock, put his hand over him, and then as he passed by, he took his hand off, and Moses got to see the after effects, the backside of God, and that was pretty awesome. Um, when the prophets see God in a vision, they're overwhelmed by how awesome he is and how awesome his face is. So the blood in the millennium is going to provide a covering for the people that are still mortal for the duration of the millennium. And it's going to happen, I believe, on Yom Kippur, and it will be repeated year after year after year until, of course, the final year. And and then the efficacy of that blood sacrifice will pass away. And then fire comes down from heaven and uh, consumes everybody there in Revelation chapter 20. So the millennial sacrifices are not to make me right with God. That's what the blood of Jesus did. And even more fundamentally is me repenting, right? That's 
absolutely crucial. That's the first step is to confess my sins, then to repent of my sins, not want to do them anymore and go this direction instead of following after sin. But then I still need something to fix the problem. And that's where the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus fixes the problem. Whereas the blood of animals does not fix the problem. It's only a band-aid of sorts. Okay. So it's a band-aid of sorts that will be used for mortals during that period who still need to do what? We read this already in this show in Revelation 22, blessed are those who wash their garments or keep the commandments that they may have the right to take of the tree of life and to enter into the city by the gates. So you have to uh, take of the river of life and the tree of life in order to enter into the city, which also means you get your new body. So uh, the blood of animals cannot do that for you. That has to be a heart issue. It's still the, the transformation. The payment is based on the blood of Jesus. The blood of the animals during the millennium just acts as a temporary fix, as a temporary force field. All right. Thank you for that. I'm going to have to, I've got very little time, but let me see if I can get maybe one or two. All right. This is from the Brand Dialogues. Why would the seven-year cycle be strictly for the promised land? Why or why not? Um, I don't think that the seven-year cycle is only for the land. I think that we see this, especially in agriculture. And somebody just asked, you know, when does it start? I don't know. Uh, you know, does it start in 2020, 2021? I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I suggest that there are people that do. But, you know, um, farmers, even today, for a long time, have understood that you have to let the land lay fallow. And if you don't, there are consequences, right? And, um, and, Sometimes we, we keep using too many chemicals because we won't let the land rest. You have to let it rest. So I think that that is for the earth at large. You have to let the earth at large. The ground has to have time to rest. So that cycle. Uh, as far as, you know, other seven cycles, we, you know, the whole idea of the Shemitah, the year of release, when you let things go. You know, it's amazing as we, you know, we had a massive, economic crisis in 2008. Um, and I would suggest that if we would follow more of a biblical or follow the biblical cycle, we wouldn't have these boom and bust cycles because then we would be much more temperate in lending out money. Uh, and, and we're like, well, I don't want to give you too much because this has, I've got to forgive the whole thing in seven years, right? So it would cut down on speculation from the borrower it would cut down on some greed on the part of uh, the lender. And I think we would have a much smoother ride if we followed the biblical cycle. So again, I think these are universal principles that apply no matter where you live. Thanks for the question. And the last one, I'm going to have to give this one to, I'm looking for a short question. So glad you guys wrote in and put your questions in there. All right, this is, from Ruth, ¿cuál es la relación histórica o mitológica entre Baal, Astarte y otros dioses nombrados en el Tanaj y en los textos cuneiformes? Lo siento por escribir en castellano, pero es más fácil para mí. No problem, Ruth. So what's the relationship, the historical relationship or mythological relationship in, between Baal, uh, Astarte, and the other gosses, gods, excuse me, named in the Tanaj and other texts, cuneiform texts? Well, so... Great question. I just finished my Corrupting the Image, uh, part two, volume two, right? It's called uh, Hybrids, Hades, and the um, Mount Hermon Connection. So I go back as far as you can go, and I look at Enlil. Enlil is Satan, right? Enlil has many other names. That's part of the challenge of, like, who are we talking about? So Enlil is also known as Baal. Baal is also known as Minurta. He's known as Marduk. He's got lots of names, but they're all talking about either Enlil or the son of Enlil, who was Ninurta, who was Lord of the Earth. All right, so that's one one part of this. And then uh, Astarte is 
um, Ishtar in the Assyrian or the Akkadian tradition. But if we go back one more step, back to the time of the Tower of Babel, who do we find? It's Inanna, who is the queen of heaven. Queen of heaven, right? So she's the woman that rides the beast. And in these ancient texts, we actually find that she's riding a beast, just like it says in Revelation. So that's the relationship, is that those gods started at the Tower of Babel, uh, you know, the Kingdom of Babel. And this is why God talks about Babel in Revelation 17, uh, among other places. And he is saying how he's going to destroy Babel. He's going to judge Babel. It says in Revelation 18 that the sins of Babel have come up before God, right? They, they've reached their fullness, and that's when he's going to judge. So those gods that started back at the Tower of Babel by Nimrod are still alive and kicking, right? Even though Babylon the city is gone, they just transferred and they changed their names, but they're the same exact gods. So that's the relationship between them. Thank you for asking that, Ruth. Uh, even if it's in Castellano, that's great. Thank you, everybody, for your questions. Uh, if I didn't get to it, save it for next time, and I will do my best to get that, get to it. So I'll see you next Tuesday. If you can, tune in tomorrow. We have a uh, virtual midrash here at 7 o'clock Mountain Standard Time. And then on Thursdays, I have my show with my two friends. We're doing the Prophecy Roundtable. So tune in for that. We're going to be talking about the beast. Is he human? What is he, Nephilim? Something like that. So it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, God bless you until